you know, um, I think the the really the reason that um, the reason I stepped down from being program director was was because John, my youngest, our youngest son died, and that's that's really you know kind of began a, a kind of a new I guess chapter in in our lives. So I. I I stepped away from running the residency program after he died. I don't remember how I felt. I never thought I'd live to read about myself in my hometown. How my brave young life was forever changed in a mystic life of pink vapor. Darling, give me your kiss. Only Silicon Valley and uh, so my mom was a teacher um, from a very large Irish Catholic family and my father was uh, actually an orphan so who grew up in East LA and I'm the oldest of four boys um, and like I said I grew up in Silicon Valley I went to college very close by at Stanford and uh, that's where I met my future wife. I actually initially studied engineering, electrical engineering, for uh, almost three years there. Um, but fortuitously, I actually, in large part because of again, my then girlfriend, f future wife, uh, she prodded and maybe nudged me a bit to consider going into medicine. And so that made a huge difference in my life because, you know, that led me down a completely different path. Um, so I, I did medical school in San Francisco, very close by. Uh, what school was that? The CCSF. Okay. <laughs> and um, and uh, there, let's see, I, I you know, um, actually, I'll, yeah, I should say a word about that. I don't think I was a very good student. Um, I sort of, um, it seemed like a, a, a different kind of a, it almost seemed like a foreign country to me in many ways. So I fortunately had a really great roommate who was a friend of my wife. She'd introduced me to you. So the two of us went there together and we roomed together for four years. And that was, it was, we, we just had a lot of common interest, music, baseball, and you know, lots of things that, 
that uh, helped us navigate, which what I think was a tough period of time in medical school. Um, I think I didn't really fit in very well uh, until maybe near the end of my third, fourth year, and, and you know I had some incredible experiences on family medicine and on internal medicine where I met people who I felt that I could one, relate to, and two, uh, I could see that I might have the ability to do something like what they were doing. Um, I remember I had a very a resident who was from um, the south side of Chicago who was very much a, uh, he's an African-American guy who had an incredible ability to relate to the patients and I could just feel his, and see and feel almost like his superpower when I, when I watched him with patients. And at the same time, unlike a lot of other people I met, he was actually extremely rela extremely relatable to me. So I felt like he wasn't someone who was in another stratosphere. He had, you know, he, again, was very relatable. So kind of like an everyman. And so I, I could see myself, parts of myself in him. And so then that, that really inspired me to, to do internal medicine. And, and uh, you know, then I think, I was going to say the rest is history, but I mean, I, I left, I went. And, and that, by the way, was Leo Lindo. That's Leo Lindo, yes, yes. So um, I met Leo Lindo once. Is that right? <laughs> oh, when wow. I interviewed at UCSF. Oh, yeah. He was the chief resident yes. at the VA hospital. Yes. I remember yes. him really well. He was a memorable guy. He was. So that was at the VA. <laughs> that was at the VA, Fort Miley. And, and so, where is he now? Do you know? I have no idea. Hmm. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, the thing, the thing about him, besides the relatability, was that it seemed as if um, he was willing to show, you know, just show me, like, like some of his tricks or not tricks, but just show me the the how to put the stethoscope on the chest or or how to flip through those like ten volume charts at the VA. I was just like mesmerized <laughs> by his ability to do that. And you know, and then me, you know, coming from a family, coming from a world, uh, growing up in a, a family that had nothing to do with medicine, really never having known a physician, I, I really was, uh, I, I felt like the skills that I had didn't seem to be a lot similar to a lot of the skills that a lot of people around me had. And so, and they all seemed to kind of know what, what they were supposed to do, and whereas I felt like I didn't. On the other hand, what I did know how to do was relate to the patients, because I, and I mean, worked all my life in various customer service, restaurant, um, auto parts store, you know, always interacting with people. So I had those skills. I knew I could do that. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons I left engineering to. to to, to switch to medicine was because I felt like I wasn't using those skills that I had. Hmm. So, and uh, so after after yeah. uh, medical school at UCSF. Yeah. So then my I we got, my wife and I or my then girlfriend and I got married at, right and after that medical would be school. Helen. That would be Helen. <laughs> so and that was in 1989, and then um, we moved to San Antonio. I should I should back up a couple of years Helen had is is a Texan she's from West Texas and she um, came to California for college and then went back to Texas to go to medical school so we were apart for two years so when I 
joined her in San Antonio to become an intern. She was then a third year medical student. At UT San Antonio. At UT San Antonio, oh. right. And so uh, I did my residency in San Antonio uh, at a, uh, this is a public, we had a two, it was a two hospital system, a big VA, Audie Murphy, and then a county hospital, the Bear County Medical Center. Uh, so we had a, it was, it was sort of, to me, the, the emblematic of, I don't know, safety net training, you know, you know, taking care of everyone that walked in the door at the county. And then, of course, the veteran population is also a unique and, and um, wonderful way to learn internal medicine. Um, so then after residency, I, I became, I was the chief resident there soon after so realized Helen is then deciding to go into internal medicine as well so she was a resident in that same program where I was chief resident and I became a faculty member there in general internal medicine and she ended up doing oncology fellowship there which is which was a very wonderful place for her and then I ended up staying there on faculty for um, almost well eight years in, in general internal medicine. <clears throat> my, I worked with, I had my own primary care practice for that time, but I also would volunteer as what would now be known as a hospitalist. Back then I think it was just an internist, uh, to, you know, taking care of, I took care of my own patients in the hospital, but then I volunteered to work with the residents in the hospital on the wards. At that, 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 those clinical experiences, those teaching experiences led me to be able to spend a lot of time with the residents and and then fortuitously or for some reason I the program director at that time was uh, in the Air Force and he was often being called away for his Air Force duties and the reserves and so forth and so he asked me to be his APD which I did and so I, I, I gradually became more and more involved in the residency program and then in 19 I forget 94 maybe he got activated and he had to, for Desert Storm, so he had to go to the Persian Gulf. And so then I took over for him as a temporary program director. But then, you know, to make a long story short, when he came back, he, he no longer, you know, he wanted to move on to bigger and better things. And so then I became program director after a very few years, you know, mm -hmm. three or four. Uh -huh. Don't tell the ACG. Yeah, no, I know. It was definitely broke any kind of rules. <laughs> the rules at the time, the five years, it was definitely before the five years. Uh -huh. um, so, so then, you know, uh, Helen had then finished her fellowship. She was focused. She did a research fellowship focused on breast cancer. Um, San Antonio turns out to be a very influential place for breast cancer. It's where the estrogen receptor was discovered. And so the people she worked with there were uh, just amazing in, in oncology and especially particularly breast cancer biology. So she was doing her, like I said, research fellowship and then um, maybe joined the faculty. I can't remember what year she joined the faculty, but in 1999, my boss then, my division chief, had given me this ad saying, you know, there's this job, there's, you know, Faith Fitzgerald is this famous internist and she's stepping, she stepped down from the residence, you know, running the residency program at UC Davis and so they're looking for a new, a replacement and so you should, you should. So then, so again, long story short, we, we, I applied to this job out here at UC Davis. 
It's the first time I'd ever been to UC Davis. Actually, never. Even though I grew up, you know, two hours south of here, I'd never, I'd never seen it actually. So, uh, but uh, ended up interviewing here and then getting uh, offered the position as the residency program director here at UC Davis. At the same time, my wife Helen was offered a position running the clinical breast cancer program here because that person had recently left. So it was kind of a joint, a complicated joint recruitment that brought us to UC Davis. Um, and that's 20 years ago. So since that time, I'm going to have to speed this up. I, 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 I ran the internal medicine program here for 12 years, almost 12 years. And then most recently, uh, well, for about the last 15 years, so there was an overlap, a period of time where I was program director as well as um, associate dean for admissions at the medical school here. That job I started in 2006, and, and I'm still in that position as, as associate dean for admissions, um, although I've stepped away from the residency program, mm -hmm. obviously. So at the end of this podcast, we can give out your cell phone to anyone who's looking to get into medical school here? It seems like they already have it, Paul. <laughs> So when we were in San Antonio, um, actually when I was an intern, we had our first unplanned pregnancy. <laughs> so we, my daughter Jessica was born when when Helen was a third year student near the end of her, well, in the midst of her third year, and uh, while I was an intern. So we had a small baby at home uh, during a part of my internship and wow. then for the rest of my residency. Um, Helen took uh, some time off, six months, and she graduated off-cycle in the middle of a year and then began her, so she began her internship mid-cycle after uh, having a leave of, of uh, about six months from medical school. So Jessica is our oldest and um, so she's 31 years old now. And uh, then we had after, during Helen's fellowship, we had our second child, Paul, who is eight years, actually, sorry, six years younger than Jessica. Um, and so we, we, both of our kids were born in San Antonio there. Uh, John, our youngest son, was born actually in 2004. So again, but after we moved to California, we thought we were done having kids, actually, but, but we had a you know, another, again, unplanned pregnancy. So I, I, I like to say we had one child per decade because, you know, we had one in the 80s, one in the 90s, one in the 2000s, uh -huh. mostly because we were busy and we weren't very good planners. But so, so yeah. So, so how much of a gap was there between Jessica and John? And John, almost 15 years. Jessica was born in 1989 and John was born in 2004. So mm -hmm. it's... Uh, again a 15 year gap and so Jessica was more like almost like another mom for him rather than I mean a big sister slash mom for him right taking big sister to a new level right exactly no it was uh, in fact I would say the kids you know our kids are so far apart in age that they each helped raise the next one so I mean Jessica definitely spent a lot of time with Paul when he was young and really was uh, kind of taught him a lot again in a very motherly way and I would say Paul 
between Paul and John, they're eight years, and so he very much took on a role of, you know, more than a big brother, but just, you know, uh, his sort of inspiration in many ways. Okay. So, so then maybe you could get into the, what happened back in uh, December 2011, yeah. which is hard to believe that it was yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. It's really hard to believe. The time, the time is almost, uh, it's modified. You know, sometimes it seems like forever ago, and sometimes it seems like yesterday. So, um, I, you know, John, our youngest, was um, very much like his part, he had parts of his brother and parts of his sister in him, but one thing he loved to do like his brother was he loved to, to ski. So he was uh, on a ski team at a very, at a young age. He started on the ski team in 2010, and he had been on the ski team for a year. Um, in 2011, this was his second year in the ski team, his mom had taken him up for the first weekend of uh, that season, which was in December, uh, mid-December of 2011. It's a very dry year. There was hardly any snow. And so um, I actually was not there. I'd, I'd taken my son Paul to our annual Christmas party on my mom's side, the big Irish Catholic family the side we had they have a big party every year and so we were going to that and Helen was taking John to ski team for his first weekend and um, on the second day on Sunday of that weekend uh, you know he John was on a chairlift and um, actually fell from a chairlift uh, about almost 60 feet and hit his head and um, was you know air vacked from the ski resort to a local hospital, and uh, I got a phone call as I was driving to my um, uncle's house from Helen, saying that John had fallen, and that there was um, she didn't know where he was, well she knew he had been taken in a helicopter and she was on the way to the hospital and that I should come right away. Uh, so what one, you know, I did uh, was very clear that his injuries were, uh, he was in an ICU and had gone to surgery to uh, emergently to uh, evacuate a hematoma and um, so he he was in a, essentially in a coma in the ICU, um, and I guess over the next really couple of days we were with him at his bedside, but he 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 never really woke up, and um, eventually we realized you know how extensive his his uh, head injury was, uh, even though, you know, really ironically, he didn't, he didn't even break, he didn't break a single bone, you know, he felt, like I said, nearly 60 feet, but he didn't have any broken bones. Um, we just assumed he hit his head, and um, after a few days of not showing any improvement, we decided to 
withdraw the support. We tried to, we tried to donate his, his organs actually, um, but we were un, you know, unable to do so. Uh, and so after, like I said, after two days or so, we, we um, withdrew the, turned off the ventilator, withdrew care, and then he passed. He died uh, on on a Tuesday. So the fall, the accident happened on Sunday, and he died on Tuesday, which was the twentieth of December, two thousand eleven, um, and. Yeah, I, it's sometimes I think about that day, and you know, sometimes I don't think about it for a while, and other times I do, and I, you know, I have flashes of what it felt like, and flashes of him, and flashes of him taking his body away um, to the morgue. You know, he'd fallen, and it was in California, but then we were in Nevada. There had to be a uh, the, the hospital was in Nevada. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they they had to they had to do um, you know a, a brief autopsy because of I'm not sure some kind of rule that I'd never really understood. Um, mm -hmm. um, I guess maybe because his death occurred on a I, I don't know in a in a kind of a business or something I'm not, I'm not sure but so then um, we uh, yeah you know our, our so that moment that day those days are a bit of a blur but but everything changed after that for for us for our family and what were the next few days and weeks like because um, uh, I remember seeing yeah. you around not too long after that you yeah. were so skinny you yeah. know yeah yeah. But like in, in yeah, particular, like yeah. what was it like trying to yeah. sleep and yeah, I think just get through the day? I think, yeah, I'll be honest, it was, uh, it's a blur. And I think those days after John died, we were, we were in some, st a state of shock in some ways. And so you're, it really feels like you're walking through molasses. Everything, everything seems to be moving more slowly. You don't have any energy. Everything is muted. I can just remember everything, everyone talking to me and everything I heard being muted and a little bit gray. We were surrounded by family. Um, my wife, Helen's family had come out. Uh, you know, my family, um, Jessica, Paul, uh, Jessica came home from she had just finished, she just graduated from college and she was working uh, as a school teacher, but she came home and she stayed with us. And uh, people in our neighborhood, actually just in our neighbors, uh, brought us food every night. Uh, you know, just dropped it off on the front porch and just went away. And uh, I just felt like we were surrounded by people that were dragging us through this mud of uh, uh of, of of just as you said getting trying to get through each day um yeah in terms of eating or sleeping i don't think i've ever slept the same again you know even to this day since john died i i i i tended to be someone who slept in i'm like a night owl i'd stay up late and 
and get up late if I can. But um, I started immediately at that point. You know, we couldn't sleep through the night, but the early morning awakening, I would say, ever since then, I've had early morning awakening. So all those sort of vegetative symptoms of, of depression I, I had at that time. And um, I would wake up at night in the morning early for a couple reasons. I think because of the depression, one, but secondly because uh, John used to come into our room in the morning. He was an early riser. He used to get up super early. And of course on the weekends, on the weekdays when he had to go to school, of course he wouldn't wake up and I'd have to wake him up to get him out of bed. But on the weekends, he would get up at you know, the crack of dawn and want to come into our room. And so I, I can always remember him coming into our room and me trying to keep him quiet so he wouldn't wake up his mom. Um, and so I have very vivid memories of him in the early morning hours coming into our room and I couldn't get that I couldn't get that scene out of my head uh, about him sort of opening the door or hearing him coming into our room which is another reason I think that those that early morning time I I, I can't I often can't sleep um, still um, in terms of the eating, I, I, I think, again, all those things you hear about, you read about body image problems. I, I, I think John, John was like a skinny kid, very small. Like, you know, we were very worried about him when he was little, he, 20th percentile. His weight was always in the 20th percentile, you know, but, but his head circumference was like the 95th percentile. So it was, he was just a skinny kid with a big head. And, uh, he, I think when he died, I, I in a way, he was frozen in my mind as that skinny little kid. And I, in a way, I think I wanted to become more like him in some weird way. I didn't, I didn't, definitely didn't want to eat. But, you know, I don't know if it was intentional. I just wasn't hungry. But I think also, I think... I would do anything to sort of maintain some kind of connection with him. And so I think not eating was, in a way, part of that. Mm -hmm. I did lose weight a lot. You know, I don't know how much. <laughs> you know, I see him. I have pictures of him in my mind of him as, a, as you know, he's just a little boy. He's a skinny little boy. And, you know, um, maybe I still, maybe I still want to be like him. In, in that way. And I remember reading somewhere, and I can't remember where, that he was actually considered an expert skier. Yeah, I mean, was he was, yeah, I, he was, he seven, was. Seven years old. I mean, he was, I mean, he was a very, a very, very good skier. He, he, you know, John was very, a very sensitive kid. He could barely watch a, you know, a G-rated movie because if there was violence, he would be scared. But... <laughs> On the other hand, he would ski down, you know, <laughs> slopes that I, again, that I still have never skied down. So you're right about that. He didn't seem to have any fear of uh, out when he was out on the snow. And, um, you know, and that's what was weird. You know, when Helen got this call that John had fallen or that John, you know, was hurt, 
I think she assumed, and certainly I would have assumed that it was because he was skiing and he skied into something. Or, but you know, the idea that he fell from a chairlift was just uh, like almost unbelievable. Um, uh, but he was—he was a beautiful skier. Uh, I could barely keep up with him. Again, his brother is a beautiful skier, Paul. I think he just followed his brother, and he—he he knew, you know, he just had such beautiful uh, example. Mm -hmm. in, in Paul um, but it was paradoxical to me he's so sensitive and so dramatic in a way and, and like I said so uh, scared like a scaredy cat kid a little bit about violence like I said you know if there was a loud noise but skiing uh, he was just in his element so Mark I guess reeling back a little bit from what happened and I think for so many people it's virtually impossible to imagine, yeah. uh, although there are people who've had similar trage tragedies. But how, how did you, if you're thinking about sort of, I don't know if lessons is the right word, but yeah. um, I don't know, strategies is probably mm -hmm. the wrong word, but mm -hmm. what were some of the things that helped you guys get through, uh, not just that time, yeah. but the entire time? I think uh, a lot of this is, I don't know, I consider it to be luck <laughs> in some ways. Um, lucky that we were surrounded by people who held our hands or, or, or um, were present for us. You know, I think the thing that surprised me the most, I think all of us have in your mind, look, if, if when the chips are down, this person is really going to be there for me, and 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 maybe this other person, you know, won't be, or, or there'll be certain people that'll be there when you need them. I think one thing that really surprised me was that how the people that some of the people you thought would always be there sort of retreated, and I think it to me that's one of the lessons is that it's it's too painful some, for some people. I think. And, and myself included, again, I wrote about this in the paper a bit, when faced with other people who had lost a loved one or lost children, I, I, I just shied away from it, shied away from them, because I, I, I didn't know what to say, you know, I didn't know, I think we're always wanting to say something that makes people feel better, and what I realized is that the way we got through this was people, yourself, Craig, so many others came forward and were there for us and it and it didn't matter what they said it was really just a matter it mattered that they were there and that somebody cared you know lots of people care but care enough to be present even though they might not know what to say or be, to make you feel better because there really is nothing that can make you feel better I think that's to me a lesson. You you don't have to say something to make people feel better. You just you really just have to show up for them in some way. Um, and I was so we were so heartened by that. Again, the community it's it's what community is, right? Again, our neighbors, who like I said, would drop us you know drop off food and leave it just to make sure we had enough. Um, I think the other thing, the lesson, if you will, is that. I think we often assume we're the only person suffering, and when you when you live when you experience something like this, you realize 
you start to meet people and you listen to them and you hear their stories and you realize that you're not the only one. Um, every, that, I don't know, everybody, right? Everybody has a cross maybe to bear or everybody faces down loss or trauma or suffering. And so I, I think it's, that's really what got us through this. I, and I think, I guess, the, I shouldn't say that's the only thing. The other thing, I'll be perfectly honest, um, I think if, remember, Jessica was away at college. Actually, she was done with college. When this happened, our family unit was Helen, myself, John, and Paul. After John died, I think one of the main reasons we survived was because we had Paul and we had we 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 had to take care of him and when when you have a purpose in life then I think that in a way allowed us to go on I, I don't know what would have happened had Paul not been there and not needed us to be his parents like to be to not be paralyzed or rolled up in a ball you know mm-hmm. of tears you know which is what what we felt like doing you know and, and Paul was how old when John he was died? he was uh, 15 mm-hmm. he was you know when you're 15 years old you know your life hormones adolescence you know who you are you're already kind of I think struggling but then with his brother when John died I think we just knew we had to take care of Paul and we had to lift him up or hold him and and you know so we felt the need to take care of him but I'll be honest I think he took care of us in so many ways and and that those bonds that form when you're like in the deepest darkest place they're they're just really you know just so powerful and so uh yeah, I don't know, strong. So, so I guess if, if you're thinking about survivorship skills, mm-hmm. you know, sh- should anyone ever go mm-hmm. through what you guys have gone through, yeah. wh- what did you, yeah. what are your things have you taken away from all of this? Maybe you do this before the thing happens to you, but you, you have to do things in life that I think have purpose you know, have meaning to you. So after John died, I, I, um, I think this happens to a lot of people who have lose a child or lose someone they love dearly. Is they they think about what's really important to them in life and what they want to spend the remaining moments of their life doing whether that's what kind of work you want to be doing or whether that's who you want to hang out with, um, what, how hard you want to work. Uh, all these things, I think, are, are reset. And, um, you know, for a time, I didn't want to go back to work. I didn't want to do anything r- except just stay home. And, and like I said, just make sure I enjoyed my time with Paul. But... When I re-entered, if you will, I was able to, um, I think, appreciate the impact of some of the things we do at work and maybe 
realized that other things are not so important and I was going to let them go. So I think that the answer to your question would be the things that kept me going or the things that I think had meaning or purpose for me. So, uh, you know, I think the medical school admissions role I played, I got involved in developing some new programs that have to do with, you know, a different kind of student and, and a building a program that's meant to, um, you know, to, to sort of change the way we do admissions and to change the kind of the people that we include in the medical workforce, that's been very meaningful work for me. Um, the other thing that's been meaningful is trying to make sense of John's death in a way, in the, in the way of us trying to make skiing better for other children, that is safer for other children. I think us working with the ski resort to try to prevent this kind of tragedy from happening to another little boy, little girl, was very meaningful. Like, I think that helped us to feel like all of the work that we put into raising John wasn't for naught, or that his life was not, you know, wasted in some sense. Mm -hmm. um, so doing, thinking about what's meaningful and important to you in your life, and trying to pursue that if you can, I think that's a way to in, immunize yourself against the inevitable slings and arrows or ups and downs of, of life. Um, and then I think being vulnerable and sharing with others, which is not something that people naturally do, that's a way to allow others to come in and to help lift you up a bit when you're down. Because I think the other lesson to me is that nobody makes it on their own. I've never thought people make it on their own, but I learned that very acutely when John died, is that there were so many people that helped, that lent us a hand, that uh, you know just showed up for us. And other than the dropping food off, and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what were some other ways yeah. that they helped? I think, honestly, they the people who knew John would talk to us about him and tell us what they, how they remembered him and what he said to them, how he made them feel, how he made them laugh. Uh, some, a really generous or kind act that he had performed or, or had, had, uh, they had witnessed, you know, with their son or daughter, or uh, just all those things, you know, when you you think about your children, they're at school, you know, you see them, you take them to school in the morning, you pick them up in the afternoon, you have dinner, you put them, you give them a bath, you put them to bed, but they spend this whole, this whole part of their life at school, and, and oftentimes you never know what happened, you know, you never see them there. And when we lost, when John died, I felt like I, I wanted to do anything to, 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 to know him better, to like understand what he was like in his class or with his friends. And so I think a lot of people shared that kind of information. It was very, it was like a, it was like a salve, you know, for me, actually. And it also helped me realize that he, his presence was still there, you know, in the world. And, um, you know, you feel so detached. I felt so detached from the world. And so it was a way for 
us to feel more connected to the world. Um, I think small children, well, you know, small children, they can't survive. Well, I don't know. I guess they can survive, but it seems like their parents are such an important part of their life. You're so close to them. I think when you lose them, you you lose a big part of yourself, your, who you are. Uh, it, it feels is an emptiness there. And so I think other people can help fill that emptiness um, with particularly those people who knew John or can share, are, are, are willing to share about if or how he made them feel. Uh, you, you're just so desperate for any, any glimpse, any trace of, of the person you lost. Mm-hmm. Um, I think other, other ways were that people, people exposed us to things that we would have never considered. Um, Helen, one of Helen's, someone who came into Helen's life right after John died was a woman named Ann Murray Page, who was struggling with breast cancer and who was going through her own illness. She was extremely kind to us and she actually turned Helen on to, to, to yoga, which was very therapeutic for Helen. And then eventually I started going as well. And that turned out to be something that I if you would have asked me beforehand, I would have said, "There's no way I'm ever going to do a yoga class." I don't even. I would have laughed, scoffed, you know, been very <laughs> judgmental about it. But I'll tell you that there was something that yoga had the effect on me and Helen of being some type of release, uh, some type of pain relief. I don't know if it's endorphins or if it's the just the concentration that's required that uh, that because it takes a high degree of concentration that you 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 cannot get through it without letting everything around you go or, or let you know thinking about just the thing you're doing just the pose you're doing just being completely in that moment it requires that that much concentration that I think you're again forced to let everything else that's in your crazy mind go. I think that so to me, that that was very therapeutic. Uh, actually, to me and to Helen, to both of us, I think it was, and it really kept us together. Like I think our marriage in many ways, because when you lose a child, I think one of the other things you lose is, I think you lose. Well, you're just, I think relationships are so fragile anyway, but then when you have a traumatic event like that, I think it's oftentimes relationships just fracture and, and, and break apart. And I think yoga kept us together. It was an activity, even though it's not like a, a in-depth conversation, but it's an activity you can do together you that you can yeah it's a, it's a, it's an activity you can do together so in a way it brings you together so that was very therapeutic for our relationship but it was also to me again a tremendous relief pain relief i think it was mm-hmm. it was 
it also was painful, you know, but that was in a sense pain relief too. It's, it's you know, painful as on your muscles. Yes, <laughs> sorry, physically, yes. So it was physically uh, painful, but in a way, it, it, it resulted in a release of pain, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. Um, it didn't make, it wouldn't have made sense to me if someone had explained it to me before. <laughs> but I just, um, I think the other thing is that yoga, this is a stereotype, Paul, but yoga, I think the people who go to yoga, there tend to be, uh, one of my yoga teachers said this to me very early on and I, it stuck with me, which was that um, people come to yoga for inspiration or out of desperation. And when she said that to me, I was like, oh man, I'm in the latter category. I mean, I, I just would, wanted to feel or try anything to feel better. Uh, I would have tried anything to, 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 to feel better. And so um, maybe, maybe yoga classes are filled with people that are similarly injured in a way or not filled with, but there's a, there's a subset, at least, of people that are, that are searching for something. Yeah, there's some, some type of desperation. I, it may, that sounds dramatic, but I, I really, f- that, that, that's probably the one that, that resonates, sticks with me to this day. Sort of ranging a little mm-hmm. away from this topic, one of the themes that's come up in the interviews I've been doing is that in terms of... Um, Oh, I don't know, getting through this year, it's been yeah. so hard on everybody on the planet, COVID, the pandemic. One of the themes that's come up is I've noticed that it, it's not that it doesn't phase people who've been through a lot mm-hmm. or suffered a lot, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem quite yeah. as impactful. Have you yeah. felt that way yeah. at all? Or I think, I think you're right about that, Paul. I think the pandemic is really hard. It's hard to see the suffering, but personally, the toll that it takes on me personally, um, the, the, the feelings that I described to you after John's death, it, though, I, it's, it, it doesn't compare to that for me. I guess I'm able to, I'm, I'm able to confront it much more easily. It, it doesn't feel as deeply, I guess, injurious to me or my constitution in, in a way. Um, and I feel like I, I can survive it knowing what I've survived. I mean, witnessing that, it, it, it's actually, I think that's what you're trying to say maybe. I, I, I haven't, it's not been as much of a struggle you know, in medicine, Paul, all of us, we see things that are t- terrible, right? We see things happen to patients for over and over. We see death. We see illness. We see people lose control. But I don't think you ever experience it so deeply in such a deeply personal way until it happens to you in some form or another. And while I'd had loss, personal loss in my own family, my brother way too young i felt i felt that very deeply but it didn't even compare to the depth of the kind of darkness and sadness and hopelessness after john died i don't know i mean i i do feel 
I do feel for the, the, the tragedy that's, in fact, we've, we've, I think COVID has been extremely difficult. The way I see it is that if I think of John being in an ICU without us or us being able to be with him or in, in his last dying moments, you know, or in, for us and for him, for us, we were all together with him his brother, sister, his mom, his dad, that that moment, that scene today, you know, it might not even be able to be possible because of COVID. I think that's, to me, what really actually really affects me when I see that. And I've seen it. You know, I, I have a woman that actually cleaned our house for 20 years. She's a Mexican woman, really became part of the family, knew John. She actually died two weeks ago of COVID alone in a hospital uh, without even like her son, daughter, you know, by herself. And um, it's horrible, you know. I, I So so I guess I see it. I can see, I think that that's the part that sticks in my head is that loneliness or, or isolation of patience. So I was wondering if you could tell me about the tree. Yeah, the tree. Yeah, the tree is... John's tree, as I call it, is a is a small red oak tree that um, a group of parents from his class decided to plant after he died. So John died in December of 2011. He was second in second grade at the time. His eighth birthday is in May, and so on his eighth birthday, again with the help of of uh, these parents and the other children in John's class. Um, planted this tree near our house in an f- open field. That was on May 23rd, 2012. We had a small gathering there for his birthday with the children in his class, and they were able to each help plant the tree and put up little stakes around it to protect it. And then each year since then, on the day that he died, we continued to gather with that same what started out as a group of second graders and a few parents and um, has grown over the years to many more um, many more people who come just to celebrate his life each December um, 20th. Um, I think the tree has a lot of significance for us because it's just a place that we remember a lot of fond memories of him biking by this area playing soccer in this exact same field. Uh, it's only a couple blocks from our house. Helen used to take him to his piano lessons, and they would ride bikes right by this spot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he first learned to swing, you know, in a little, as a one-year-old or even less, in a little swing set that's right nearby there. And so it's just a way for us to be with him still. And uh, the tree is growing, but honestly, it, it's also a little kind of a skinny tree even after almost, it's almost 10 years old. And so uh, I'm always asking the tree people, like, is there anything we can do to help this tree grow? But they say it's a healthy tree, but, but it's, it's, again, still very small and very, very skinny. And not too far from the tree is my favorite thing, which is yeah. the owl box. The owl box, yeah. The owl box is, again, a wonderful gift from someone who uh, I mentioned earlier, Ann, Ann Page, 
her husband is a bit of an owler and made an owl box and actually put up a series of owl boxes throughout Davis where we live. They have to be a certain height for the owls to fly into it and then want to nest there. And so he, he and Paul actually, and I helped a little bit uh, after they had, after he'd built the owl house, Paul painted it, and then Sandy, which is his name, um, scaled this tree up, and the, the owl house is 60 feet above the ground um, in our neighborhood also. And uh, so we have owls nest there every year, a couple times a year. They're small. They're b- basically like burrowing owls, uh, not burrowing owls, um, um, I'm blanking on the name. Great horned? Uh, no. no, no, not great. They're, snowy owls? They're like snowy owls. Barn they're, owls? They're barn owls. That's it. They're barn owls. Jeez, B. <laughs> it's not a burrowing owl. Barn. Uh, so we have barn owls that nest there every year. They make an incredible amount of noise, a squ- squawking noise when they're young for several weeks before they can actually learn to fly and leave the, the box. Um, the neighbors must love you guys for that. No, they, they, it's exactly right. They, they curse our name. They were so kind about, it. oh, yeah, you can put the owl box there. They, but I think they, they sort of have lived to regret it. They, 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 seriously, this last year they told us they got earplugs. And, you know, it's a, it's a couple of weeks, but it is the time they're most active is right after dusk, you know, when it gets dark. Mm-hmm. And so that's when they make all this noise. Um, but the, the 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 thing about the owls for us that's so meaningful is John loved birds. He was always looking up to the sky, and he was always seeing things that that I couldn't see: airplanes, birds, birds up on a wire, or birds in flight, or or um, you know again, stars. He loved the stars. So I think when we see the owls, it reminds us of him. He loved birds like that. Um, he loved raptors, and uh, he was just a very, a very nerdy kid about about stars and flight. And uh, there's a lot of great birds in mm-hmm. Davis too. It's right? true. <laughs> it's true. Great bird watching there. It's true. He yeah, and 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 we we would drive to school, and he would always be pointing a bird out that I that couldn't see. Of course, so trying to drive, but even if I was able to look, you know, he just had. His eyes, great, great, sort of a great eye for birds and and the the sky. Actually, um, he he was into he was very into that. Uh, so it helps again. It's a connection to him mm-hmm. uh, for us. The owl box and and when we see owls and they grow and fly and mm-hmm. you know learn learn to leave their nest. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a park bench. It's, there's a very beautiful bench that our neighbors... Across from the owl box. Yeah, across from the owl box. And it's actually right next to a playground, a little sand, you know, sandy playground. Um, close to the tree. Close to the tree where uh, we have a... There's a memorial bench. And so uh, it's it's a spot where we used to watch him play. So if we sit on that bench, it's it's as if, you know, maybe he's there on a swing um when he's when he's a little little baby um yeah that's that's paul what i'm talking about about the community people mm-hmm. people really did so much for us and 
tried to help keep keep John's memory alive, and that's that's the part that I said it before, but that's what community means. I think it's the people who are there for you when when you fall and mm-hmm. uh, when you need a hand and uh, we're so grateful I, I, I you know people tell me this all the time you know like our relatives who live in Texas and elsewhere, my wife's family always say, I just can't believe your neighbors like cause how amazing they are and how supportive and um, yeah to this day that you know the one of the neighbors sponsors a golf tournament each year for charity that um, they named you know after John um, they've have a little monument at his school uh, where each of the kids in the entire school got to make a tile um, an artist put the tile all around this beautiful tree oak tree where John used to play at the school at North Davis Elementary Uh, that's a beautiful monument if you will memorial so for people listening to this what kind of maybe last words would you have of advice about if they have friends Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who go through what you and your family have gone through and your friends I think I think my my biggest piece of advice would be if something like this happens to one of your friends or one of your neighbors or colleagues don't be afraid to be with them or go to them in whatever way you can if that means showing up with a meal I can remember as certain people bringing us you know just a a thing of donuts months later I don't mean in the immediate aftermath but just even at any point little small gestures showing that you care that involve you being present whether that's again with some food with a company uh, writing a card uh, sending a gift uh, anything any kind of action that shows that person that you're there with them, that they're not alone, is extremely meaningful. Uh, Because when you're in that place, you're just so low that any little gesture helps, even in a small way, that helps get you to the next day, hour, day, week. So those things matter. They seem so small writing a few words about how, you know, that someone is thinking of you or that they're sorry. Um, they really make a difference. And, and I tell you, I didn't realize that until I just felt it and experienced it. Human, like, humans, like, need to be with other humans, I think. And, and I think a lot of times when people are low like that, they're so paralyzed, they won't ask you for help. Mm-hmm. So... I think my advice is to go to them. And he, the funerals is kind of a, a sort of a related corollary is that showing up to funerals I think is hard and being there and saying you're sorry or, or, or um, expressing some type of emotion or support is hard. 
and people shy away from it. But it's for the f- grieving person, I think it, it's, it means a huge amount to them. Well, I want to thank you for being on this podcast, mm-hmm. Mark. I know uh, yeah. it's both a good thing for you to talk about mm-hmm. and a hard thing yeah. to talk about, but I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate I actually I appreciate you you having me, Paul. I, it, it's something that I've said this maybe to you before, but it's it's something that never really leaves my mind, and so it's always floating around in my mind. And in a way, when I wrote that piece in JAMA, it was a way for me to get a lot of these things out of my head. And so it's always therapeutic. Honestly, it may be painful, it may bring tears, but it's always good to talk about it. For me. And the piece you're referring yeah. to in Jama was called? Non se solo, which means you're not alone. And I think that sums it up really about what, what got us through. You know I... coastal range in the Pacific Ocean. I'm here in front of the beautiful skinny oak tree on the Greenbelt where the biking path courses around Davis, California. This is John's memorial tree and it is healthy looking, just skinny as Mark said, like John was. Underneath it here are messages written and painted on rocks. Neatly arranged there are also two painted ladybugs in a sort of cave-like primitive painting on a slab of tumbled bluestone. I think it's a barn owl that's been painted on there. I will try and put a picture of this scene for the main image on Spotify and SoundCloud. Now I'm going to walk over to the park bench, which is a little more than a stone's throw away from John's tree. And it's a strangely overcast kind of day here in California. About 85 degrees. Cool for Davis. Cool for the Central Valley. And as I walk over, I'm on the bike path here next to the soccer fields. There's some big, beautiful trees on the edge of the green belt. There's a man combing his dog over there. Probably to keep the fur out of his house. And as I'm walking, I'm looking for the owl box. The 
And even though I've been here before, I'm not seeing the owl box because all the summer leaves are out and you can hear the birds chirping. And I'm looking up in the tree for the owl box, but I still have not located it. It's about 60 feet up, or maybe exactly 60 feet up, because as Mark said, they have to be at that level for the owls to be able to dwell in those owl boxes. I'm looking, and I now I see it, and I don't hear any owls up there, but I see the owl box, their little home. I think that Helen said they were barn owls, but uh, I don't remember for sure what kind of owls dwelled there. It's kind of breezy out here. It's a beautiful park where this bench is. Recently redone. There's an Amazon truck delivering nearby, playing Bob Marley. And here I am at the memorial bench. Look out from the back of it, looks out on the green belt and the soccer fields. And on the bench is a plaque in loving memory of John Marco Henderson, who played here and biked these paths May 23rd, 2004 to December 20th, 2011, from his family, friends, and neighbors. Well, I'm sitting down on the bench now, and I'm certainly not mistaken when I say that you can feel John here in this space, nine years going on ten after his death, and you can certainly also feel the presence of all the people who helped lift up his family, Helen, Mark, Jessica, and Paul, through that time and well into this as I depart this beautiful place, I want to thank Dr. Mark Henderson and Dr. Helen Chu for sharing their memories with me and with those that choose to listen to this podcast. The songs heard on this podcast were Nothing Man by Bruce Springsteen, Feel You by Old Sea Brigade, and A Message by Coldplay. A Message was a song that John loved but didn't know the name of and knew it only as track eight on Coldplay's X and Y album. Play track eight, Dad, he would say, from the back seat in his car seat. And we will. We'll get to that. Thanks for listening to this podcast, everyone. I'll be back with episode eight, the final episode in the Mountain Lion Surviving Crisis series in a couple of weeks, right around Memorial Day weekend. Yes, Memorial Day, an appropriate place to end these Surviving Crisis podcasts. Until then, take care everyone and stay well. Love to the loveless shore And it goes Stone
Got to get that message.